0: But I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenant, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all. God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. <clears throat> and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father, Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy, on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he hath called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, as he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. isaiah also crieth concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodoma, and been made like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Sion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed." The Lord bless His word as it has been read and now as it is proclaimed to us this Lord's day. Our text this Lord's day is from Proverbs chapter 17, verse 22. Where we read, A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dryeth the bones. People spend billions of dollars each year on medicines, drugs, and supplements in order to maximize the quality of their physical lives. I can certainly testify through my recent bout with uh, kidney stones how I literally went, in a matter of a few minutes, from a physical state of agony to that of bliss after they gave me a couple doses of Demerol. How much we have for which to be thankful to the Lord from all of the help that we have received from these aids to our health. Medicine, drugs, and supplements, dear ones, do not, in fact, heal us in and of themselves, but are the means ordained by God through which he brings about healing in our weak, frail bodies. Thus, we ought never to despise whatever lawful means the Lord has appointed and uses to sustain and promote our own physical well-being and health. However, let us never forget that we are not only body, which is material and visible, but we are also soul, which is immaterial and invisible. And the Lord has so mysteriously and wondrously united body and soul together that what happens in the body can and does affect the soul. And what happens in the soul, or in the mind, does affect the body as well. Thus, the disposition of the soul ought not to be left out of the equation when considering the health of the body. For example, it is a well-recognized fact that the outward circumstances that we are going through can so affect us and bring upon us such stress that we can suffer headaches and all the way from headaches to all uh, other types of illnesses and diseases. Well, this truth, dear ones, that we're now speaking of is certainly not new. It wasn't uh, something discovered in the 20th century or the 21st century, but was clearly taught by God through King Solomon in Proverbs 17.22. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth the bones. Dear one, since Christians should be desirous of being the most effective servants of the Lord that they can possibly be in both body and soul let us consider from our text, first of all, a divine prescription for good health. Proverbs 17.22, the first part of that verse. And secondly, a divine warning for poor health. Proverbs 17.22, the latter part of that verse. First of all, then, a divine prescription for good health. Listen very carefully to the words of Solomon who speak by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. God, in effect, says, if you would enjoy good health, you must not only use medicine and supplements as needed, but you must also use a merry heart at all times. Let us look a little more closely at what a merry heart is by considering, as we often do, what it is not and then what it is. What a merry heart is not. Well, first of all, a merry heart, as used here by Solomon, is not mere laughter. Laughter does not in and of itself equal a merry heart. So, laughter is a gift from God and is, and is a great blessing when used at appropriate times. Laughter in and of itself does not equal a merry heart. Why is that the case? Well, laughter on the outside may in fact conceal great sorrow and pain of heart on the inside in various circumstances and situations. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 13 says, Even in laughter the heart is sorrowful. and the end of that mirth is heaviness. Not all laughter indicates that one has a true, biblical, merry heart. Many times, uh, and you probably have done it yourself, or seen others, laugh out of embarrassment. It's not because they have a merry heart that they're laughing, but because they have embarrassed themselves in such a way. Perhaps they've fallen, stumbled in front of a, a crowd of people. and get up laughing. We may laugh if we are very nervous as well. It's just a nervous reaction sometimes on the part of people to laugh. It doesn't necessarily mean that there, it comes from a truly merry heart. Furthermore, laughter may also be used... <coughs> in excess or at inappropriate times. In such cases, it does not issue from a merry heart. James, in chapter 4, verse 9, certainly would give us some indication that not all laughter is appropriate. James says, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. If we laugh when we ought to mourn, if we laugh when we ought to worship in reverence, if we laugh when we are corrected, we are not manifesting the kind of merry heart of which God here speaks. You see... As in all things, moderation is the key. We ought to be moderate in the, in the way that we use all things that are lawful, whether food or drink or exercise or work or recreations or laughter. And so laughter does not in and of itself mean that one is of a merry heart. Thirdly, laughter may be directed at or the result of immoral behavior. For example, we find these biblical instances where there was laughter but it was the result of something immoral something contrary to the word or the law of God. Sarah laughed at the promise of God she did not take the promise of God seriously in Genesis 18 thirteen that didn't is issue from a merry heart as God speaks of in Proverbs seventeen twenty-two. Laughter may be the occasion of mocking the righteous or that which is righteous. In Psalm 22, 7, a Messianic psalm, it speaks of those laughing the Lord Jesus to scorn as he is crucified upon the cross. We find in Proverbs 29.9 that laughing is associated with drunkenness. Here was how much, and you probably thought about this as, as well as myself, but how much of the humor of the world, whether jokes on TV or in movies or at the workplace, either has the audience laughing at that which is righteous Or laughing at that which is wicked. Laughter is a gift from God, but it must never be used to imply our approval of that which is immoral. Or our disapproval of that which is moral. Yes, it is true that God himself laughs at the wicked, according to Psalm chapter 2, verse Let me read for you that passage, as I'm sure you're probably very familiar with this. But in the context of laughter, I think it's important to say something about this. Here it speaks of God. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Who will he have in derision? Those who conspire against him and against his anointed one, even the Lord Jesus Christ, to overthrow his kingdom. Who think that they can actually topple the kingdom of God by their puny little efforts, by their, their human resources, overcome the Almighty God. God laughs in derision at their vain and futile efforts to overthrow him. Thomas Adams Uh, has said, and I think it's worthy to be repeated, Pharaoh imagined that by drowning the Israelite males he had found a way to root their name from the earth. But when at the same time his own daughter in his own court gave princely education to Moses, Israel's deliverer, did not God laugh? Oh, what are his frowns if his smiles be so terrible? Certainly in the same sense, dear ones, we may laugh at the vain attempts of man to overthrow the kingdom of Christ. We may say in our laughing how utterly ridiculous and silly people are to think that they can overcome the Almighty God. The second thing that A merry heart is not. is not laughter. Secondly, a merry heart, as used here by Solomon, is not mere feasting. It is not merely throwing a party where there is plenty of food and booze. There was such a party. Described for us in Daniel chapter 5, thrown by Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, for it says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. And the story goes on to express how they uh, treated with great sacrilege the holy articles uh, that were dedicated to the Lord God but here is a party thrown with much food with much feasting with much wine but not a party and not feasting which in fact is not does not proceed from a merry heart another thing that a merry heart is not A biblical merry heart is not immersing oneself in worldly pleasure. in amusement of the world is not, in and of itself, a merry heart. Listen to, again, the words of Solomon, this time as he speaks in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I said in mine heart, go to now. I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. To enjoy pleasure, Solomon goes on to relate in this particular section of Ecclesiastes how he immersed himself in pleasure, how he satisfied every want of the flesh, every desire of the flesh, with pleasure, with amusement. But it, uh, he says, in the end, it was all vanity. it was all useless, it was meaningless. It did not proceed from a merry heart. You see, dear, there is a thin outward veneer of merriment in one who seeks pleasure for pleasure's sake. But there is an ocean of emptiness within. And I think even in our lawful recreations, we must use them in a lawful way. We must not only ask whether they are lawful in and of themselves, but we must seek to use them lawfully if they are to bring true joy, if they are to proceed from a merry heart. And I would give to you just some guidelines, four brief guidelines which we should follow if we would have true joy from our lawful recreations. First of all, as we have noted, our recreations must not be contrary to the word of God. They must not violate any of the commandments of God if they would be lawful recreations and used for his glory. Second, our recreations must be done, as I just mentioned, to the glory and the honor of God. Let me ask you, do our recreations or do your recreations help you to be more effective in serving the Lord and your neighbor? Or do they have a mere entertainment value attached to them? Do they really make you more profitable in the service of God? Or do they simply just entertain you? Do your recreations reflect a better understanding of God's creation, of God's salvation, Do they give to you a better understanding of yourself and your need of Christ, of your own weaknesses and frailties? Do they better help you to understand the Lord and how you might better minister His word? Do they draw you closer to the Lord? Or do you find while you are being amused and enjoying your recreation, that your heart drifts away from the Lord and not having the effect of drawing you closer to the Lord. See, lawful recreations should not send us from Christ, but should make our spiritual walk even more enjoyable and should refresh us so that we can not only perform our earthly duties, in the body, but also be more effective in our spiritual duties unto the Lord. Thirdly, our recreations must not give an implicit or explicit approval of sin. I would submit, dear ones, that we should not invite into our home actors or actresses in the form of movies that perform lewd acts, blaspheme the name of the Lord, or break other commandments of God if we would not invite a neighbor into our home to do the same thing. This applies even to the music that we listen to as well. And fourthly, our recreations are to be mere diversions for a brief period of time and not consume our lives. We are not to be recreation oriented, amusement oriented. We as parents must guide our children in all of these areas where we have failed and we as parents can certainly say, I think most of us can say we have failed in various ways. But we must talk and reason with our children through these particular principles helping them to understand what is best for them and what will bring them true joy and not a superficial type of a, uh, outward veneer of cheerfulness or mere amusement. Finally, the fourth thing that i Merry Heart is not a merry heart, according to our text, is not a happiness that fluctuates with every trial and affliction like the thermometer which changes depending upon the t- temperatures each day brings. A merry heart is more like a thermostat which regulates the temperatures in our lives when trials or blessings come our way. A merry heart regulates It doesn't fluctuate with every trial. There is a joy in the Lord, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the stress, regardless of the intensity of the pain and the heartache through which we pass. There is a joy in knowing God is in control. And Jesus Christ is our Savior and tempers every trial with his amazing love. Well, what is a merry heart? A merry heart, dear ones, is a holy heart. One cannot be truly merry, joyous, and cheerful without having a pure heart and a clean conscience before God. For sin condemns the non-Christian and convicts the Christian, who cannot experience joy while he obstinately continues in his sin. True joy of heart can only be experienced when one knows and receives the love of God who rescued such vile sinners as we are by meting out His infinite justice and wrath against our mediator, His only begotten Son. A merry heart, beloved, is only manifested in one who daily sorrows over the sin committed against God and one's neighbors. Daily lives in the forgiveness of Christ. Daily endeavors to crucify the flesh and its evil desires. Daily worships and communes with Jesus Christ. And, and daily grows in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. The second thing that a merry heart is a merry heart is a thankful heart. One cannot be truly merry. Who is filled with murmuring and complaining against the trials and the afflictions God has brought into his or her life? To rejoice in the Lord and yet to complain against the Lord and His providence cannot peacefully coexist within the same heart at the same time. You rob yourself, dear ones, of a, of a merry heart whenever you choose to complain rather than choosing to be thankful. When you're tempted to complain against God or against God's providence, I would suggest to you, rather than allowing those words to form upon your tongue and to be spoken or to be uttered, knit them in your imagination and in your desire and in your thoughts by rather listing five things for which to be thankful. And if you are still wanting to complain and wanting to murmur against God's providence, list five more things until you have no reason to complain or to murmur against God's providence at all. And you see how gracious and merciful the Lord has been unto you. And you know, when this becomes a habit in our lives and we follow this particular advice, we will experience a continual feast of joy in our hearts. Thirdly, a merry heart is a contented heart. Only those who, like Paul in Philippians 4.11, are learning and growing in their contentment in all circumstances can enjoy the blessings of a merry heart. What would it take, dear ones, in your own life to make you truly content? What would you say? If I had this, I would be truly content in this life. Well, if it is anything other than Jesus Christ, I can assure you that you have deceived yourself. For everything in this world is changeable and perishable except Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is not the foundation, and if the gospel of Jesus Christ is not the foundation of your joy, you'll always be seeking a merry heart but never able to find it. Fourthly, a merry heart is a humble heart. Pride and selfishness leads only to pain and misery for it is truly an empty and sorrowful existence to be all wrapped up in yourself. Where there is no self-sacrificial service to Christ, Or to one's neighbor, there can be no true joy. For in such a case, everything around us exists for our happiness. And since nothing around us can completely satisfy us, as we have already noted, because it's alterable, changeable, and perishable, we will never know what it is to be cheerful, simply because God is pleased or honored in what we do. That will not even cheer us. We will not uh, know, we will never know how we can be merry in the gifts and the graces of others. We will not be able to rejoice in what God has blessed others with. We will rather simply bemoan the fact that we don't have those gifts and graces and we want them. We'll find ourselves in spiritual competition, seeking the attention of our peers. We will not know God's divine pleasure in using even the one talent which the Lord has blessed us with, one talent which we may use for His glory to extend His kingdom upon the earth. We will even bemoan the fact that God has graced us with that one talent rather than using it for His glory if we're not content. Fifthly, a merry heart is a believing heart. Only those can be merry in heart who cling to Christ and to His promises. For they do not have to put their fingers into the wounds in his, uh, into the, his, the wounds uh, of His hands to know that He is the Almighty Risen Savior, who is able to do infinitely more than they can even imagine. They do not have to see already the fulfillment of the promise that's been made to them before they believe that Christ is trustworthy and will unfailingly keep his word, for he would cease to exist if he lied. The believing heart looks to Christ's character that he's trustworthy, that he's faithful, that he's powerful, that he's loving and merciful and gracious. The believing heart looks to the promises of God, which God does not make simply to to lift us up just to be crushed when he doesn't fulfill his promises, but makes those promises to us to encourage us to trust him, to rely upon him no matter what is going on around us. The believing heart looks to the token that God has left to us in his oath. He's not only made us a promise, but he's even taken an oath, the scripture says, as it were raised his right hand and sworn by himself that he would keep his promise. Now God is not obligated to swear an oath in his own name that he will keep his promise. His word is sufficient. So why has he done so? To further encourage us. That God will keep his word to us. A believing heart looks to the token of God's past faithfulness. It doesn't simply look to the promise in the future and its fulfillment, but it looks back to the promises God has kept time and time and time again in our lives and reflects and brings them back up as a feast to eat from, to drink from. Encouraged by the faithfulness of God. The believing heart looks to God's sacraments as love tokens, signed and sealed of His covenant of grace to us. Finally, a merry heart is a hopeful heart. When everything all around us seems to fall apart, if we would be cheerful and have a continual feast of joy in our soul, we must look and hope to the amazing glory the Lord has prepared for us in heaven where we will be given even greater honor and glory in a higher place than the angels in heaven. Samuel Rutherford has truly written in his letters, I wonder many times that ever a child of God should have a sad heart considering what his Lord is preparing for him. How can we be truly sad when we cast our eyes upon the glory which the Lord has prepared for us? Such a merry heart is like a medicine to the health of the body, Solomon says, and not simply to the health of the soul because the body and the soul have been intricately joined together by God so that one affects the other. Dear ones, we, before we look at the second main point very briefly, let me simply note this. We may become so wrapped up in the mere duty of our work that we lose the joy of our work we are not to be like the Pharisees who conceived of much to be done, but little or nothing to be enjoyed in what they did. We may carry the weight of and the burdens of the whole world upon our own shoulders rather than casting moment by moment all of our cares and anxieties or the cares and anxiety of of others upon the Lord, whose shoulders alone are able to carry such burdens and weights. We are not to be a gloomy people whose seriousness about life allows little or no rays of cheerfulness, appropriate laughter, and smiling countenances into our everyday existence. Yes, we may be busy, and praise the Lord if we are. We should not have too much time on our hands, that's true. Yes, we may have a very stressful job to perform, very laborious, a lot of pressure, deadlines that we have to meet. If Such is the case. How much more we need to work on having a merry heart lest the care and stress of our work actually work us into an early grave and send us away from Christ rather than to Christ. One last comment before moving on to our final point. How do we reconcile what Solomon says here in Proverbs 17.22 with what he says in Ecclesiastes 7.3? where he says, sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Let me offer to you some suggestions as to how to reconcile these two statements by the same author, both inspired by the Holy Spirit. First, the merry heart of the godly is not opposed to the sorrowful heart of the godly. There is no contradiction here at all, for there can be no true joy in the heart of the godly if they do not first know what it is to mourn over their sin and the sin of others. Jesus said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. It is through our sincere grief of sin And the offense we have committed against the love, the grace, the mercy, the righteousness, and the holiness of God. And we are brought to see with a believing joy that the only hope in overcoming sin is Jesus Christ. A second consideration about this seeming uh, inconsistency in the two statements of Solomon is that the contrast in Ecclesiastes 7.3 is not between a godly sorrow and a godly joy but between a godly sorrow and an ungodly laughter and mirth where we see the proper contrast in Ecclesiastes 7 verses 4 through 6 notice what it says the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. This is the wise man. He's in the house of mourning at the appropriate time. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. This is a kind of mirth that betokens a fool. Not godly cheerfulness. Not godly joy. Not a truly biblical merry heart. But the house of mirth. It is better Solomon continues, It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise, for which we might mourn, than for a man to hear the song of fools. Many songs of fools that are out there on our radios, on the CDs, and on tapes today. And we so often follow the way of the world and delighting in the song of fools more than we delight in the rebuke of the wise. Verse 6 says, For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, that is, a pot that is, is burning, so is the laughter of the fool, this also is vanity. So you see the contrast is between godly sorrow and ungodly mirth. That's the contrast in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 7.3. So it is not inconsistent with what Solomon says. In Proverbs 17.22, wherein he, he speaks of a godly laughter, a godly cheerfulness, a godly and merry heart. The true Christian religion, dear ones, is not filled with only gloom and doom. It is a religion to be taken seriously because life and death Heaven and hell will stand or fall upon one's faith or unbelief in Jesus Christ. But Jesus came to bring life and peace and joy to man and to bring it more abundantly. He came to make our joy full and complete. He came that we might enjoy all that He has created to even a much greater capacity than any unbeliever is able to do. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, we read these words. Charge them that are rich in the world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, notice these words, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Whether God is not a killjoy... Satan is the ultimate killjoy who brings on momentary laughter so that people laugh themselves all the way to hell. God is the ultimate joy of man's desiring. To enjoy Christ is the surest way to find true joy now and for all eternity. Let us not follow our sinful hearts, therefore, in order to find joy. But let us know our Savior, commune with Him through His word and prayer and cherish and practice His word in our lives. And we will have a merry heart. The second main point, and again, this will be a brief point that, uh, that is uh, elaborated on here. The second main point is a divine warning for poor health. Consider with me the words of Solomon and focusing on the latter part of that verse. Proverbs 17.22 A merry heart doeth good like a medicine but a broken spirit drieth the bones. The second part of this verse provides a fitting contrast to the first part. Here we find what will inevitably lead one to poor health. That is, to his bones being dry in this life. And it is said to be a broken spirit. Literally, a stricken or scourged spirit. That is, a spirit that has been wounded and has been beat up. Well, we ought immediately to wonder how such a broken spirit is used here in a negative sense. Because it is used in a negative sense here since it is an undesired contrast to a desirable merry heart. How is it used in a negative sense? For we read elsewhere in Scripture concerning a broken spirit that it is a necessary grace in the life of every child of God. For example, in Psalm 34, verse 18, we read, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. And in Psalm 51, verse 17, we read, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. But let me say that as a grace, A broken spirit refers to the wounding of our sinful pride, which needs to be wounded, which needs to be crucified, which needs to be destroyed in our lives. In this sense, a broken spirit is a lowly-mindedness in which we see the Lord as holy in ourselves, as vile. The Lord as mighty in ourselves, as weak. The Lord is deserving of all glory and honor in ourselves as deserving of all wrath and condemnation. Genuine repentance ought always to be accompanied with a broken spirit, in this sense, before God. For our pride, our simple pride, is wounded. where it is stricken. where it is bruised and dealt a deathly blow. If we would be a humble... A broken spirit refers to the wounding of the conscience by our own sin or by the sin of others who have offended us or sinned against us. It is an attack upon the conscience of one wherein he becomes so beat up over his sin, so laid low because of how someone has offended him, that he does not fall upon the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, but falls into an ugly, dark pit of endless sorrow and condemnation. It gives way not to the promises of Christ, but to despair. The despair of one accusation after another against him. Or one accusation after another from others who have sinned against him. This brokenness of spirit, of which Solomon here speaks in Proverbs 17.22, leads to a paralyzing apathy. Who cares? Is the end result of this type of a brokenness of spirit. It leads to depression so heavy that it weighs down upon the shoulders of a person so that he is bent over under the burden of his sorrow. Of a sin, dear ones, this is not a genuine godly sorrow which leads to life, which the apostle Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians chapter seven. But this is a legal sorrow, or it is an unforgiving sorrow that turns the day at noon time into a darkness of midnight. This word is used only in two other places. In this form, as an adjective, in the Old Testament very telling the two places it is used both places in Proverbs Proverbs 15.13 where it says a merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance but by sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken and in Proverbs 18.14 the spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity but a wounded spirit who can bear when it is grieved when the conscience is grieved and burdened in this kind of sorrow, who can bear it? When the light of the gospel is darkened and blackened out and all that can be seen is doom and gloom, who can bear it? What is the ultimate cause of such a broken spirit in man? Well, I would suggest it's the unabated condemnation of sin against oneself or against others that seems to yell louder than the voice of mercy and grace and love in Christ Jesus. In such a case, the answer to a poor sinner's despair and depression, listen closely, ones is always the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news. Someone in that condition doesn't need more of the law of God. They are so bent over and oppressed with condemnation, they need to understand that there is an answer and a solution to what they feel. And that is in Jesus Christ. The law of God is very needful in all of our hearts to humble us. But many times, dear dear ones, we use the law of God unlawfully. And in such cases, we need the gospel of Jesus Christ to straighten us out again in our Christian walk. Not only to come to Jesus Christ, but to live a life that filled with merry, true merriment and cheerfulness and joy in the Lord. <clears throat> it is not the law that binds up the broken-hearted, although it is necessary to break the proud-hearted. It is the gospel that gives hope and brings a merry heart. For we read in Proverbs 12:25, Heaviness in the heart of man maketh it stoop. But notice here. But a good word maketh it glad. What is the good word? What is the best word that you or I could hear but the gospel, that Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners? Jesus Christ died to offer His life in the place of sinners like you and me. That there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That He has removed the doom and the gloom within the Christian life. He has borne it all away in the covenant of grace. And we only cast ourselves back under the covenant of works when we live under such doom and gloom. There is no virtue, none at all, in the doom and gloom of a broken spirit for its own sake. Such is the hopelessness and despair of false religion. It is a false gospel. It is what Rome teaches. in It is doctrine of penance, that you must suffer. And you must continue to suffer if you would have forgiveness of sin. If you would have assurance of salvation. You must continue to suffer and suffer and suffer. And you must even continue to suffer after death. Because you haven't suffered enough in life. And so the whole focus is taken off of Christ and His suffering. Christ and His righteousness have placed upon your suffering and your righteousness and your fitness thank God it is not your fitness it is Christ's fitness it makes us acceptable for the Lord and if that's not something in which to rejoice then there is nothing in this world in which to rejoice the gospel of Jesus Christ everyone, sets the prisoner free and issues in a merry heart and one last qualification before we close the merry heart the godly merry heart does not lead us to be antinomian so that we have no love for the law of God so that we have no desire to please God by obeying his commandments so that we tolerate and we approve of sin in our lives or in the lives of others a merry heart as spoken here by Solomon does not lead to antinomianism The merry heart actually leads us to the only cure for our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his peace and his joy. Please stand with me in prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, how we do rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ this day, how we glory that we can have a cheerful and a merry heart. And we can make this a continual feast in our life as we do resist the attacks of the enemy. uh, and as we resist, O Lord, the accusations and the allowing the offenses of others to so weigh us down. Allowing, O oh Lord, the cares of this life to so beset us that we forget that we are to enjoy even our work for the glory of Christ. We pray, Father, that thou would work in our lives, stir up our Father a believing heart, a hopeful heart, a thankful heart, a holy heart, a contented heart. Give to us our Father communion with Christ, that we might enjoy Him who is our joy and our life. We pray, Father, that Thou would cause our merry heart not to take sin less lightly, but, O Lord, our God, to take sin more seriously as we do see that which Christ has saved us from. We ask, Lord, these things in the name of our Savior. Amen.